This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm glad you're back this week, Wade, because I need your help solving a mystery. Oh, wow. What could it be, Kevin? Is it murder? Is it a bomb stuck on the back of a car? Even more important, I was looking at my name recently, and I found a message in the letters. If you rearrange the letters in my name, it reads, Link the Vince Man. (laughs) What does it mean? What were my parents trying to tell me? Kevin... The game is afoot. Listeners, we have a great show for you today. First up is our review of Henry Bradbeer's new film, Enola Holmes. We're also going to be bidding farewell to our film noir series with a look at a film that arguably ended the classical noir period in Hollywood. That's right, we're talking about Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Uh, This is the end of a beautiful friendship. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 265 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, Sherlock Holmes. The famous detective, scholar, chemist, virtuoso violinist, expert marksman, swordsman, single stick fighter, pugilist, and brilliant deductive thinker my genius brother. He will have all the answers. Listeners, that is a clip from Enola Holmes. We're going to jump into our review of that Netflix film here in a moment. It is episode 265. And Kevin, I'm glad to be back. I was not here for 264, but I really appreciated your review, a couple of reviews, with Sarah Welch Larson. Uh, You talked about, I'm thinking about ending things, and the third man, I'm jealous. I didn't get to talk (laughs) about the third man with y'all. Yeah, well, you know, that's what you get for gallivanting around in the natural splendor of the American West, Wade. Yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and take that punishment. But no, it was it was a great episode. I, I have not seen uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things just yet, but it's, it's on my to-watch list. And of course, I do have to sing y'all's praises for The Third Man. It is an incredible film. I mean, it is, it is so good, and that's why I'm so disappointed I didn't get to talk about it. Yeah, well, you know, maybe we can we can talk about it off the air sometime. <laughs> we won't. Our listeners won't get to hear your your insights, but I'll take them. I'll I'll, I'll listen to them for for all of us. Yeah, no, no, I, I I agree. That sounds that sounds really great. Listeners, we're gonna jump right into this week's episode with our review of Henry Bradbeer's Enola Holmes from Netflix. Here's the film's official synopsis: England, 1884, a world on the brink of change. On the morning of her 16th birthday, Enola Holmes, played by Millie Bobby Brown, wakes up to find that her mother, played by Helena Bonham Carter, has disappeared, leaving behind an odd assortment of gifts 
but no apparent clue as to where she's gone or why. After a free-spirited childhood, Enola suddenly finds herself under the care of her brothers Sherlock, played by Henry Cavill, and Mycraft, played by Sam Claflin, both set on sending her away to a finishing school for proper young ladies. Refusing to follow their wishes, Enola escapes to search for her mother in London. But when her journey finds her entangled in a mystery surrounding a young runaway lord, played by Lewis Partridge, Enola becomes a super sleuth in her own right, outwitting her famous brother as she unravels a conspiracy that threatens to set back the course of history. Kevin, this is the latest film in what feels like an endless stream of Sherlock Holmes adaptations. I think it was a couple of years ago when Mr. Holmes came out, we tallied up how many there were, and it's just, it's too many. It keeps growing. I want to go ahead and cut to the chase here, so I'm going to begin with this question. Does Enola Holmes add anything new to this super sleuth franchise? Or will it go down as a middling or even weak entry in a long line of weak entries? <laughs> well, uh, that's uh, certainly uh, one way to introduce this film. I think that the, the thing that was surprising to me about this film is how little actual sleuthing there is in it. You, you use the word super sleuth to describe Enola Holmes, and the film uh, opens rather promisingly uh, with the question of, uh, you know, Enola Holmes's uh, mother, she's living with her alone. Sherlock and Mycroft have both, you know, matured and grown up and have, have left home as adults, leaving Enola alone with her mom. And then one day her mom disappears, leaving behind kind of this trail of clues, presumably so that Enola can track her down and solve the mystery of why her mom disappeared. And that's that's a pretty solid setup for a Holmesian kind of mystery. You kind of expect there to be a bunch of sequences where we watch Enola sit down, sort of figure out these clues, work them out, make some deductions, you know, good, solid Sherlock Holmes kind of stuff. And then the film kind of forgets about all that and goes onto this parallel track where uh, Enola Holmes becomes embroiled in this kind of political intrigue surrounding this this young lord, and it kind of stops being a mystery, or at least it stops becoming about the act of solving a mystery, which I think is ultimately what the best Sherlock stories are all about, is the game being afoot and that game being deduction, logic, working out a mystery. And there's just not that much here. There's a lot of other stuff, but I don't think it's that other stuff really works to the film's benefit or really makes these characters particularly interesting to me. Yeah. Well, there's there's kind of there's a lot, but there's actually not much to say about Enola Holmes. I I like like most people uh read short Sherlock Holmes stories uh, as I was younger, and I actually just picked up another one as a result of of this, of this movie. Uh, but th- this movie is just it's just not interesting, and I I think it's because at, at the central 
section of this story, the mystery fades away uh, to more social issues, which is is fine in many senses. But overall, the movie just becomes kind of kind of dull, and there are some word ciphers, but the mystery almost evaporates as me- as immediately as it comes uh, because the answer is kind of right there. So uh, she meets this young boy and we're trying to figure out why someone is, is trying to kill him. And within minutes, uh, the film almost directly tells us why. I mean, if you're paying attention, it's right there. You don't need to be a Sherlock Holmes uh, observationalist in order in order to know what's going on. Now, you don't know who's behind it, but you know what's what's happening. Uh, and yet, we're always behind. Uh, we're in front. Sorry, we're always in front of the character here. And in a Sherlock Holmes story, we're usually behind the character. We are finding things out after he has found them out. And so I think this evaporates the mystery. Uh, and overall, it's not as fascinating as it could be. And then, too, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this movie. And I was, I was reading Alan Jacobs uh, recently. He has a new book out called Breaking Bread with the Dead. And he talks about uh, individuals making sequels of classic works. And in his discussion... He talks about how there's this propensity to sort of rip these stories from their context and add a 21st century spin to them, which which is fine. But it's also easy in the midst of that to only confirm 21st century sensibilities. And I think that's what this film does. And there's really no conflict. There's really no wrestling with the world of Victorian norms. Instead, it's, oh, this was a this was a terrible place for a lot of people. Uh, they were forced to fit into these roles. They didn't always want to be in these roles. And aren't you so glad we're not like that anymore? Uh, there's not really a conflict there. And there's not much of a conflict, I feel like, anyway, with the actual mystery. So it, it ends up kind of being a, a dud to me. Well, uh, you you hit on something that I think is very true about this film, which is that it thinks that in order to have um, a a strong female character or to make a story about a strong female character during an era when those characters were were unfortunately in short supply, it kind of it kind of has to stack the deck in her favor, right? Like she she has she has to be not just intelligent, but obviously intelligent. She has to be not just uh, physically capable, but a ninja, basically. Like there are all these things that you kind of that have to be layered on top of each other, almost as if the filmmakers don't trust the audience to be on board with their portrayal of a character like this in uh, Holmesian England, right? And I think that that kind of betrays a lack of trust in the audience. And uh, for the person sitting in the audience watching it, it feels a little bit condescending. Like the the filmmakers don't really want to challenge you with a complex character. They just want to give you an awesome character, which is not quite the same thing. And I think that that kind of spreads out and affects the film as a whole because there's not really any tension in this story. Enola Holmes doesn't really have any um, any real difficulties to overcome. She meets a challenge, but then that challenge is sort of, she finds a way around it 
you know, in the next scene or in the next sequence. There's not really a whole lot of personal wrestling she has to do. The mystery surrounding her mom where there's a little bit of this ambiguity about, you know, whether her mom is really as great as she seems is kind of almost dispensed with immediately. The audience is never really allowed to feel, gosh, maybe, you know, maybe the the mom isn't at her, the truth about her isn't quite as rosy as Enola initially believes it to be. And that's eventually set to the side and it's like, no, no, actually, she really is that great and Enola's that great and everybody's just great, which is, it's laudable to want to have a story like that, but it's not very interesting as drama. And it leads to the film feeling kind of anticlimactic where there's there there's a lot of telling us about how great these characters are, but there's not a lot of showing us how they struggle to overcome the obstacles in their path or how they feel you know, how they're actual human beings about what they're experiencing. You think about, you know, something like Greta Gerwig's Little Women, to name a, a recent example, which does do a lot of, um, it, it does feel like a modern take on on Little Women. You know, it's definitely, it's not a uh, mothballed period drama. There's a lot of modern touches, and you do get the sense that Gerwig is wanting to take her own angle on the story, but she doesn't do that by turning the char- like making the characters anachronisms. She finds a way to make them place them within their context and then reveal things about them acting in that context in ways that are both interesting and also uh, serve her purpose in, in revealing just how rich these these women characters can be. I think in Noel Holmes is almost the opposite where it kind of takes a 21st century heroine and puts her in period clothing and has her overcome all of the retrograde societal context that was surrounding her, which is, it feels like very low hanging fruit. And I think that we can demand better of stories like these. Yeah, you you, you mentioned conflict and I, I definitely felt that way with her mother and just uh, recently reading about uh, Winston Churchill and his complicated relationship with the uh, women's suffrage suffrage movement and the the violence that occurred around that and i was looking forward to how that would play into the story and will it give us something to think about will it kind of complicate the story add some conflict add some flair and uh, it it didn't i'd like to see a little bit more as well, and I, I was, I just finished reading uh, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, and a lot of people don't like that book uh, because at the the center, one of the big conflicts in the center of the book is that they're a group of young people and they want to put on this play, and the main character she is she's not into it because it's unbecoming of their group, and. When I read that book, a lot of people read that book, uh, the the main character feels uh, kind of like a party pooper. Um, but what I appreciate about that book is it forces us to kind of wrestle with the norms of that society. Uh, and it, that doesn't mean we always agree with it, uh, but wrestle with what they thought about prop- propriety and um, behavior. And that that's fascinating, and I, and and that's the joy of, of reading these these old books. Uh, you get to 
look into a different world, and uh, we, we definitely don't get that. I also want to speak for a moment about one of the, one of the ways the film goes about uh, revealing the thoughts of Enola, and that uh, is she often narrates the picture and she breaks the fourth wall. So she speaks directly to us, the viewer. And in one sense, I think that provides some fascinating possibilities because when we read the Sherlock Holmes stories, we are reading from the perspective of Watson. We are hearing his thoughts, his fear, his confusion, his bewilderment, and it's effective. But it's effective because we're not inside the mind of Sherlock Holmes. Instead, like I mentioned, we're, we're, we're usually a step behind that adds conflict. Uh, here, I think the way that she speaks directly to the camera is kind of funny, uh, and I think there are some scenes where, where it does work, but there is no mystery. We're completely inside her head all of the time, and I think that takes away some of the edge of her sleuthing abilities. And I, I think what makes Sherlock Holmes fascinating is he's just so different from a lot of us. And I would have loved to see this character have that type of mystery uh, and aura about her, um, but it's not there. And, and part of it is the writing and part of it is just the way the story uh, or where the, the way the uh, film goes about telling its story. Yeah, that fourth wall breaking is kind of a uh, a delicate balancing act to to pull off because it does provide some uh, interesting opportunities to sort of bring the audience in and almost have this conspiratorial relationship with Enola. Like like we're kind of in on something, privy to something that the rest of the world really isn't. And I think there are real possibilities there. And there are times where it it is kind of fun when. Millie Bobby Brown, who's predictably very good. She's, you know, just just as good here as she is in Stranger Things when she shoots a look straight down the barrel of the camera. You know, sometimes that's amusing. And you we know that Harry Bradbeer uh, is an adept hand with this kind of device because he directed a lot of the episodes of the uh, TV show Fleabag, which that kind of the whole conceit of that show is that Phoebe Waller Bridges protagonist in that sh- in that show kind of has a one-on-one relationship with the audience and talks to us constantly and communicates in that way. And so it's interesting to see Brad Beer pulling that out again for for this story too. I'm not I haven't read the source material by Nancy Springer, so I don't know if the uh if the book kind of has that same sort of vibe, but that's definitely the vibe that Brad Beer is going for here. The problem is it kind of seems like a crutch. There's not a whole lot of... In in Fleabag, it kind of works because we are being allowed to sympathize with somebody who's not a very good person because of that fourth wall breaking thing kind of shattering the remove we have from the characters. Here, I don't think Brad Beer really does anything with it. It's more just a, a vehicle for kind of jokes or, or humorous moments. But they don't really succeed at being all that funny. And by the end of the film, I found it to be eventually kind of tiresome, kind of smarmy. Like there, there's there's a point where Enola is trying to come up with a plan to break out of this finishing school that she's been imprisoned in. And then she turns to the audience and asks us, do you have any ideas? And kind of gives us a look. And then we cut to her plan being enacted. And it just, 
the the whole po- the whole reason we're watching this movie presumably is to watch her figure things out and to enjoy the process of a character who's much smarter than us find a way out of this predicament and with the film kind of smash cutting from that fourth wall break to the plan already in motion it really deprives us of that pleasure which is just not the right approach for a story like this well okay i i do want to talk for a moment before we before we transition out about sherlock holmes's character there's been uh i guess some controversy uh, people who didn't necessarily like the way henry cavill either played him or maybe just how he was written uh per jack thorne's screenplay uh so i i do want to ask you about that. How did you feel about Cavill? And there's also news, and I think it broke either today or yesterday, that he might have a spinoff. So there's an Enola Holmes spinoff, which I guess just makes it Sherlock Holmes. I don't I don't know how all that works, but <laughs> how did you feel about Cavill's performance here? You know, I, Cavill, what, and the, both the way he performs this character and the way the character is written is one of the few things I actually liked about this film. I think that Cavill finds a way to make Sherlock to to give us the audience a sense of his of his intellect and uh, the way that kind of makes him stand apart from uh, the people who are close to to him. I, I found that to be I found it to be effective the way it was it was teased out here. Um, and as somebody who's generally uh, a little bit skeptical of Cavill when he's not kind of playing uh, full-on like mo- suave movie star kind of roles, like uh, uh, in The Man from Uncle, for instance. I I was happy to find him really exceeding my expectations here. I, I liked him quite a bit. I'm not sure that I'm really interested in watching more of him. I think he was used exactly as he should have been for this story. I mean, it's, it's a Nola story, and he's a supporting character, and I think he's perfect for that. If he were to have the limelight all to himself, I, I'm not sure I would find this Sherlock as compelling, but who can say? Mm. I, all, all I can say is, in this movie, he worked for me. What about you? Yeah, I, I thought he was fine. I, at first, it seems a little bit odd because I, I expect him to be a little more eccentric, which I think he could do because I, I really do like him in The Man from Uncle. I think he plays a, a great character there. Uh, but uh, I think he's in it just enough to do well, and he he carries a presence here that I appreciate because there are a number of scenes where he, he is very subdued, he is very quiet, he's thinking, and which is good. He, Sherlock Holmes, um, and and that presence I think carries him through those scenes when he could have easily been just you know adore um but uh yeah i i think he's fine i don't i don't think he could carry a whole film because of the way his character is put together um i would say i don't know i might be interested in seeing him try though possibly maybe <laughs> yeah i mean it, you know he's he's not got the same sort of screen presence as a, a, a basil rathbone sh- shall we say but you know like if they're going to make one i would be intrigued by what they do as long as 
it has more actual mystery solving in it than in Enola Holmes. <laughs> no, no, that's definitely true. Listeners, that is our review of Enola Holmes. It's currently streaming on Netflix. If you've seen it, I've got a, I've heard of a number of people who've, who've watched it. People have asked me about it. So it seems to be a pretty popular movie on Netflix right now. Make sure to let us know what you thought. You can either connect with us on Twitter at CBeliefPod, at CBeliefPod, or you can email us seeing and believing CAP at gmail.com. If you disagree with us, I'd love to know why because there are people out there that really do enjoy this film. It just didn't work for me. Listeners, we're going to be back in just a moment. We're going to be closing out our noir summer of darkness with Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. We'll be right back in just a moment. Listeners, that song is Stutter Island, September 6th by Ricky Share. We want to take an opportunity before we move on and thank all of you for supporting us via our Patreon campaign. Whenever you do that, you keep the show going. We have a number of different donation levels. One of those, our favorite, is the What Can You Buy for $5 level. And, you know, Kevin, I've been out of town and I, I drove thousands of miles. And the question that kept coming to my mind was... What, what could, what could someone buy for five bucks? And I'm back and I gotta, I gotta ask you that. What, what could someone buy for five bucks? So, so you're, you're just to make, be clear, yeah. you were, you know, sitting behind the wheel yeah. in, in the driver's seat of your camper, you know, just driving through, uh, you know, these picturesque, uh, vistas and your wife, you know, turned to you as you were silent and kind of looked at you and wondered, I wonder what's going through his mind. And that was what was going through. I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> that was the only exception Exception was when I was listening to the episode of Seeing and Believing that y'all recorded two weeks ago. Only exception. <laughs> <laughs> well, then then you will be happy to know that the, the, the question that was on your mind, the thing that was occupying all of your attention, I've got an answer for you, Wade. For $5, you could buy some wheels for a rowboat so that you can take it anywhere on land as well as on water. Oh, wow. So, okay. There you go. Yeah. Well, okay. I was, in, I was on a kayak not too long ago, and, and there were these, like, carts with wheels. Are you thinking, like, you put it on a cart, or do you actually put r- wheels on the rowboat? No, no, you, 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 you drill holes into the boat and you attach the wheels. So <laughs> it won't be any good for the water anymore, yeah. but at least you can go around, you can row around on land. The oars are a little bit more awkward to use when you're like pushing against the pavement, mm. but you get used to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I, I think that rowing a rowboat on land is actually kind of, kind of a statement 
about the state of our world and our planet. Like, it's kind of a politically charged statement. So, yeah, I mean. It's a statement of some sort, that's for sure. <laughs> Listeners, go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, and you can see what you can buy for five bucks by becoming a supporter. Once again, that's patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Yeah, that's right. And we also appreciate, even if you uh, don't uh, become a a patron, we do always love hearing from our listeners. And Wade, after our episode uh, of a couple weeks ago where we reviewed I'm Thinking of Ending Things, obviously that is a film that has a lot to talk about. And we heard from a a new listener. Daniel Orris uh, wrote us over email to say, Hello, I'm a brand new listener to your podcast. As a fellow Christian, I appreciate a resource that's searching for the sacred in our popular culture. I'll be following along. He goes on to say, It seems that the title of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, like Adaptation and Synecdoche, New York, is a clue to what Kaufman is exploring. I'm Thinking of Ending Things as a statement of intent to initiate a breakup or commit or commit suicide, which I think the movie is ultimately about. He goes on to offer his thoughts on the plot, which I'm going to elide here just for spoiler concerns in case anyone hasn't seen it. But he goes on to say, I wonder how many allusions I may have missed and what those might add. I picked up on the nod to A Beautiful Mind. Wikipedia offers that the dance sequence is similar to Oklahoma. Is there a significance to the Cassavetes film that the characters converse about? Are the mysterious phone calls about there being only one question supposed to remind us of Hamlet and his pondering about life and death? That's where my mind went with it. I appreciated the film for its complexity, originality, and performances, but agree with Kevin that it does seem to be consumed by hopelessness. Jake lives a solitary, aging life that's spent reflecting on a lifetime of memories focused on his parents' declines and the harshness of life on a farm. I finished the movie permeated by that bleakness and won't be eager to rewatch it anytime soon, even though I think it was a very well-made film. Thanks for inviting responses. I'm looking forward to seeing The Third Man soon, and you have a treat ahead of you, Daniel. Thanks so much for writing in with those thoughts. Loved reading them and loved sharing them on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, and the the descriptions that he offers uh, makes me really want to see the film. Like I said, I haven't, haven't seen it yet, but um, I'm very excited, especially after y'all's discussion a couple weeks ago. So thanks a lot, Daniel. I, I Also, you know, while I was driving, thinking about what people could buy for five bucks, Kevin, I seem to have missed uh, some controversy, probably a lot of controversy, but the one I, I definitely missed was the Cuties Netflix controversy. I have not seen the film. I've heard a little bit about it, but up at ChristandPopCulture.com, KB Hoyle wrote an article called Cuties Isn't the Problem, Our Cultural Addiction to the Sexualization of Minors. And I have yet to read that article or watch the film, but it has received so much traction on our site. And so if listeners are interested in Christ and Pop Culture's take on the movie, go ahead and hop on over. I don't think we're going to have a chance to review it on the podcast anytime soon, Kevin, but it is there. And whenever you support Christ and Pop Culture listeners, you support work like that where 
great thinkers and great writers really tackle uh, important conversations today. So, so that's on ChristandPopCulture.com. And if you're there and you'd like to become a Christ and Pop Culture member, that too is only $5 a month. And like I said, everything counts. Everything helps us as we keep trying to keep the podcast going, keep Christ and Pop Culture going, and really have uh, hopefully some conversations about pop culture and our Christian faith. What's my fortune? You've been reading the cards, haven't you? I've been doing the accounts. Come on, read my future for me. You haven't got any. Hmm? What do you mean? Your future is all used up. Welcome back to the second half of our show where we reach the end of our possibly misnamed Summer of Darkness (laughs) series on Film Noir here in October. Wade, I'm just going to pretend that we did this on purpose Mm -hmm. in order to be embody our own sort of noirish saps who have grand plans only to lose control of them eventually. <laughs> well you know we had we had a certain number of weeks where we're like okay we'll do it the minimum and then schedules shuffled around and then we we're like well well like what's the rush like we're living in a in a world of darkness why not just continue the summer of darkness <laughs> Yeah, so so now we're into the the autumn of darkness. <laughs> the I autumn guess. of darkness, the year of darkness. Maybe that's maybe <laughs> that's it. Well, you know, at least unlike the the saps of film noir, at least we didn't end up with any murdered innocents or gunshot wounds. Mm-hmm. So I guess we've we've got that on our side. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's definitely covered currently. So yeah. Well, we are going to close things out finally here in October, uh, appropriately somewhat, with the film that many critics argue closed out the era of classical Hollywood noir with Horace and Wells' 1958 film Touch of Evil. Now, Wells famously had a bit of an ego on him, but there isn't a shred of vanity present in the way he cast himself as Hank Quinlan, the dirty cop who clashes with Charlton Heston's Mike Vargas in this film, Quinlan is grotesque, a lumbering, corpulent, racist lawman who prefers to plant evidence when he can't find it in order to shape the world as he sees it, full of guilty people who deserve his punishment. This worldview feels very simpatico, maybe a decent summary, in fact, of the film noir worldview in general, a a world full of guilty people who all have some sort of comeuppance coming uh, which renders Vargas's battle to expose Quinlan's corruption over the course of this film during an investigation of a car bombing seem all the more heroic, but also hopeless. Now, Wade, hopelessness is obviously a, f- a theme that runs through a lot of noir, and it runs through this film as well. In this film, it may also be a little bit 
uh, appropriate from a metafictional angle as Wells was famously hopeless when it came to studios not futzing around with his films <laughs> after he finished them. Touch of Evil uh, was famously monkeyed with with the studio that because it didn't test very well, they did some things with the sound mixing, the editing that, in Wells's view at least, diminished the final product. For a long time, that studio version was the only one that was available, and that's the one that you and I both rewatched for for this episode of the podcast. There is a, I believe, a, a Blu-ray release out there where you can see a somewhat restored version according to the way Wells originally envisioned it, so definitely worth checking out if you can find it. But my question for you is, Wade, having seen this film, knowing what we know about Wells as both a director and actor, and as uh, Hank Quinlan, the character who's portrayed in this film, how do you see all those versions of Wells informing this film? How how do you see this film in its place in Wells's career and in film noir as a whole? That's a that's a really good question. It's it's a little difficult to to answer. I'm not necessarily an expert on Wells's career, but I can compare this one. I'll compare this one to Citizen Kane, and and a lot of times people, when they compare them, they they try to say, well, you know, everybody likes Citizen Kane, but Touch of Evil is better, or this or that. I I think just like Citizen Kane was innovative and produced techniques that were never seen on screen. Touch of Evil, uh, similar things could be said of Touch of Evil. As I watched this movie. It feels ahead of its time in its pacing, in its camera work, uh, a couple of long takes. I mean, we got the long take at the very beginning, which is just iconic, and it's very famous. And a lot of people who haven't even seen this entire movie have seen the long take at the beginning of the film. But there's another long take uh, towards the middle of the movie. That's, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. And the use even of, of soundtrack and of pacing and of blocking, this this is a just a masterful movie. I mean, it is put together extremely well. And so I, I would have loved to have watched the Orson Welles, I guess, authorized version before this podcast, but I don't I don't need to in order to appreciate just what this movie does. So it seems like a film that turns the corner technically. At the same time, uh, this is a movie, and as I, I, as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, this is a sequel to the typical film noir. So you have all the tropes of the film noir. This is a sequel to it. And what I mean by that is Orson Welles' Captain Hank is the hard-boiled detective of film noir decades later. This is somebody who made small compromises early on, and he has fallen off the rocker here. So it seems like a fitting conclusion to film noir because it it almost completes the story, uh, if, if you will. That's an interesting take. I, I don't know that I've encountered that elsewhere, but I like that reading. If we think of you know Humphrey Bogart, Sam Spade, or somebody like something, you know, one of these one of these hard boiled gumshoes who you know maybe plays a little fast and loose with the rules, maybe roughs up a suspect or two because he knows 
that they're bad and he's just trying to get to the bottom of something. We see Wells in this film as, like you said, the the degenerate kind of slowly degraded version of Sam Spade once he's been doing that for, I think, 30 years is how long Quinlan says that he's been doing this job. And at the end of those 30 years, he's, in this film, he, he's monstrous. He's, and, and you're right that this, they're, Watching this film in 2020 after all we've seen about, uh, you know, uh, problems with law enforcement uh, and dishonest practices within policing, seeing this film, it really does seem, like you said, ahead of its time because we we see kind of the way that this, the, the way the law, a lawman like Quinlan sees himself as righteous, as a force for good, as somebody who who is misunderstood when, when Vargas tries to expose his corruption, Quinlan reacts almost petulantly. Like, how dare you try to stop me from doing my job? I'm doing good here. And you're just quibbling about where I got the evidence from. And that feels again, very, very 2020 in a way. And it makes the, the way that Wells embodies this character just feel everlasting almost like they're all he he feels like an archetype of just this bloated corrupt law system that really cares about punishing people regardless of of whether or not they actually deserve that kind of punishment i think it's it's really really a a timely and it still just feels very fresh well and to you know we were talking about or i mentioned earlier about creating stories that compel us to wrestle with that story, uh, with plot lines or revelations that complicate the story. And if this film would have been made in 2020, uh, at the end of the movie, uh, not only would Orson Welles' character uh, kill individuals, uh, but he would have framed the wrong person, and an innocent person would have faced jail time. Uh, You get to the end of the movie here. Uh, He's a monster. He's a terrible individual. But he was right on who he believed bombed the car. And he did something illegal, and he was wrong. And that's why one character says at the end, he was a great detective, but a terrible cop. And that, that was fascinating. And, and when he dies, and when he's visited by uh, the woman uh, whom he had a relationship with in the past, uh, you kind of feel sorry for him, and you wish that maybe there was there was another way, and and yet he's still a monster, and and, and Marlene Dietrich, I, I mean she's she's here and she's she's wonderful in her films and she's great here too, and and just the way that she kind of looks at this character as he dies, uh, it's it, it's really something I, I don't know, I, it's it's something very special. I, I think it's it's something really great. The complicated feelings that we experience with this story. And and two, I feel like we've talked a lot about the role of women in film noir every single week, of uh, the traditional femme fatale and then how that's subverted in other movies. And then here, uh, you have something completely different. You have uh, Janet Leigh's character, uh, Susan, and she's, she's married to Charlton Heston's character, Vargas. And... She is really put through the ringer the entire time. She, I mean, I, out of every character in the movie, 
I don't know anybody who would who would feel sorry for anyone more than her character. She's uh, there are evil people that are trying to hurt her, to drug her, and her husband, who seems to be a fairly decent individual. He's pursuing justice. Uh, he neglects her. I mean, he really does. And and her character, I think, is probably the key to understanding this film it it really is tragic and 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 that to me that's just the most conflict here in in this movie yeah that uh the the janet lee sequences in this film really they they feel almost like a nightmare there's not really a whole lot of logic to it it's but there's that entire sequence where she's you know, kind of at this motel off in the middle of nowhere, which is sort of like, hmm, I wonder where the idea for Psycho came from, which I think she made after this. Yeah, a couple years. Um, but uh, the the fact she, she's in this motel out in the middle of nowhere, uh, her husband's not around, nobody's around except for <laughs> the, uh, these two gang members who are sort of manipulating her, They're, the music that they're playing through the uh, through the speakers in the room, they never turn it down. It's just noisy. All she wants to do is sleep, and they just keep waking her up, tormenting her, and then eventually they attack her. And it, it really it has this almost hallucinatory quality. Like why isn't why isn't anyone coming to help me? Why can't I get away? Why am I in the middle of nowhere without uh, the people who care about me? It just I think that contributes to this overall feeling with touch of evil that and this is something that wells really accentuates with his choice of lighting and camera angles uh where there is kind of this nightmarish quality to the film where uh you don't really it really it's almost like the story is beside the point and we mentioned earlier that you and I both kind of saw the the version that the studio had messed with, where some plot points are maybe a little bit less clear than they should be. But the thing is, I almost don't mind. You know, watching this, it it's sort of like the big sleep where the details of the plot don't matter so much. The the weird intrigue that Heston's character is navigating, the the particulars and how everything is tied together. You know, you could try to figure them out, and they're maybe a little bit confusing, but it's almost beside the point because the point is that these characters are all just sort of enmeshed in this really corrupt world that really has no warmth to it. I really like how you point out the almost the twist ending for this film where uh, it's revealed that Quinlan was actually right about the the suspect in the car bombing, the, he, the suspect was guilty, even though Quinlan took corrupt steps to to frame him for uh, for the crime, he actually was correct to suspect the guy. And I think that you know it it does feel a little bit less tidy. Like it it feels like oh well he's right about well is Wells trying to get us to sympathize with him? And I think it's less that and it's more just Wells doesn't want to let the audience feel above at all we he doesn't want us to kind of come away from the story thinking like okay we had the tidy good guys and the tidy bad guys and now we have it all figured out and the the final lines of the film uh D- marlene dietrich says of him he was some kind of man that's all she'll say about him <laughs> what does it matter what you say about people and then the final line of the film is adios and she walks off into this pitch black night with a bunch of industrial equipment 
uh, in the background that she's walking towards. And that's just, it feels like a very, a, a very appropriately cynical ending where Wells is not letting the audience off the hook for hating the abuhis villain. He's and he's also kind of making the point that the this this darkness remains. Quinlan being gone isn't suddenly going to make everything bright again. And I think it's a it's a more difficult ending than it had to be. And I think it deserves admiration for that. Yeah, I mean, the the lighting, the darkness, the shadows, I mean, you're spot on. And there seems to be only one prop or piece of production design that has any sort of illumination. It's in the background, and it's a Jesus saves sign. And my eyes, every single time, just kind of cut to it across. And that's really the only thing here. Uh, you mentioned... The camera work, uh, it really feels like Orson Welles owns the camera when he's on screen. And the power dynamics are fully realized just by by watching the movie. Uh, there's one scene, and it's it's when Hank is, uh, he's threatening Grandy. He's, he's about to kill him, and he's on the phone, and the camera is level at Hank's height. And... It highlights Orson Welles and his stature. And Grandy is below. Uh, he, he does not have any power in the situation. And then in a swoop, the camera moves to look at both men and it kind of goes down a bit. And that's when Orson Welles once again towers over him. And just, just the power dynamics there and what it's trying to say, these extreme, uh, these close-ups, the Dutch camera angles, the blocking. I, it says so much about the relationships between the characters on each side of the, the border. And, and two, I, I, I might have, I think I mispronounced her name, but, but Janet Lee, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, about uh, the scene where she gets drugged. And as I'm thinking through some of the innovations with this film, I'm sure it probably happened before, but I'm trying to think of a moment in, in film where uh, it happens all the time now, but the soundtrack is kind of fun, kind of poppy, while something terrible is happening, something extremely violent. And this, to me, is it feels like one of the earlier examples. When the characters come and they are going to poison Susan's character, and there's this, this kind of fun, upbeat jazz song in the background as terror is being inflicted on her and this juxtaposition there and and I, I think that 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 juxtaposition carries on throughout different elements in in the film and it really oh it just really does work so well in moments especially especially there and uh probably one of the most terrifying and effective scenes of the film for me yeah and and Wells just has such an eye for, and an ear, I guess. Like the sound work, as we mentioned, is just very effective in this in this film. But the way that he marshals all these cinematic elements to uh, just create something so so crisp and um, elemental feeling is really something. I I already talked about the the lighting, but I I can't. St- I have to return to the cinematography here. Russell Meddy is the uh, 
is the cinematographer here. And there's something about the night scenes in this film that just, I, I don't know exactly how he achieves it, but it doesn't just feel like these characters are walking around at night. It feels like they're walking around in a void. I, I remember when you and I, we discussed Elevator to the Gallows uh, a few weeks ago, and we talked about the interrogation scene towards the end of that film where uh, the criminal is being interrogated by the police and and the way that it's lit and shot makes it seem like he's just kind of in this vacuum of nothingness while he gets hammered with these questions. And there's something similar going on with these night scenes here, especially the the final sequence where where Vargas is following Quinlan and his uh, his sidekick and uh, is taping them, taping their conversation in order to get some incriminating evidence. And shot at night, and they cross over this bridge. They're kind of surrounded by these oil derricks, and the sky is just pitch black. There is not a bit of of ambient light or anything to be found, but the oil derricks, these these metal frames, are just lit so that they're just they're standing out crisp white, almost as if they've been drawn with like a ruler on the film. It's just that crisp. And I don't know how he did it, but there's something about that just that just feels like Wells knows what kind of mood he wants these shots to evoke. And he is uh, succeeding with flying mm. colors. Yeah, no, and and mood is a is a great word for this film. The film is it's propulsive, uh, but it also feels claustrophobic. I mean, it's constantly moving, and there are moments, especially the use of the soundtrack here, where you you almost feel like you need to catch your breath. Uh, the walls are kind of closing in, and so Janet Lee's scenes are are that to the ma- max. But the other sequences in the film, uh, it, it, it just feels like there is there is a ticking time bomb behind this story and that it is it's about it's about to explode, that there's something happening, there's movement going on. And, and the mood is just I mean, it's it's pretty wild. And so that's why I'm interested in catching that Blu-ray of Orson Welles's cut to see what it does to the pacing of the story. Because, as I mentioned before, I you know I watched this one on Amazon. I, I, I think this is a, a great cut. I think it's a great film, uh, but interested in kind of exploring more because uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I think is pretty special. And uh, I think it, whether we realize it or not, I think it's probably changed a, a lot of stuff in the film industry and a pretty influential film overall. Yeah, and it's just, it's a really great example of how a, a director can, can both direct something very striking and provide a performance that feels just so perfect to it and just ha- have command both over his own physical performance and also just the way that he's, he's framed. I, I think I read somewhere that Wells, I mean, he, he was uh, a large guy when this was made, but he knew that he wanted to accentuate that. So he wore padding. He made sure to shoot himself from low angles. So like you mentioned earlier, he just seems to tower over people where he just fills the frame. And I think part of the reason you, you talked about the walls seeming like they were closing in is because it it looks like the way that Wells shoot it, shoots it, it feels like Quinlan is just filling up all of the available mm-hmm. space and there's no escape from him so that when we do witness him actually murder somebody late in the film, 
it's a very upsetting scene. It's almost like a horror sequence. And that's just Wells knowing exactly how to work this film and also how to make a film noir that really does traffic in a lot of very well-worn elements of noir, but also finds new places to take those elements so that what we see feels utterly singular and fresh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. He he feels like the Terminator in that murder scene film. You, you oh don't feel gosh. like there's any way for Grandy to get away. I mean, it's just, it, it it's done. Listeners, that is the end of our Summer of Noir, our Summer of Darkness series. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any ideas about future series, we would love to hear them. Make sure to tweet us at Pod at CBeliefPOD. Maybe there's a genre, a subgenre you want us to explore, or maybe just a performer or director or or a writer's work that we should look into, let us know. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we haven't talked about this, but there's a new film going to be premiering this weekend on Netflix, Dick Johnson is Dead, and uh, that's a movie I'm definitely looking forward to. So I would assume we're probably going to be talking about that here in the near future, but we've got a number of releases that are coming out over the fall. Maybe not all in theaters, but um, it's, it's really going to start, I hope, at least ramping up for the end of the year, and we'll, we'll see where the last few months take us. Yeah, there's there's a, a bunch of of new films that seem pretty that I'm pretty excited about that are coming out in October. Maybe we'll have to maybe do a, a mini fall preview mm. episode if we if we can uh, find the space in the schedule for it. But I'm definitely looking forward to Dick Johnson is Dead. That's uh, directed by uh, the same person who directed uh, Camera yeah. Person, which I know you have oh, yeah. a lot of appreciation for i'm also really looking forward to the new film from chloe zhao uh we both really liked the writer mm-hmm. which came out a couple years ago she's coming out with a new one starring francis mcdormand so that looks really promising yeah i don't know and and, and of course david fincher uh yeah it's unclear it, it's going to be coming out sometime who knows how the release has been affected lately but we did talk about at the beginning of this year about how he had a new film coming out. Mm -hmm. So looking forward to that one as well. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting ones starting with Kirsten Johnson next week. Dick Johnson is dead, but yeah, Mank from David Fincher. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but um, a lot to look forward to these next couple of months. Listeners, thanks for listening. Make sure to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get our episode. Give us a star rating, type out a quick review. It is super helpful. Thank you for checking out this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.